Hello, I'm Nigel Lithgow, and I was the executive producer of Pop Stars, My Idol, Pop Idol, and American Idol. And these are my idol memories. Before getting into this week's podcast, which will be all about the third semi-final, which included the biggest row ever between Simon and Randy over what turned out to be a complete misunderstanding, I thought you would like to know how we helped improve relations between Simon and Paula. If you are a subscriber to Idle Memories, you'll remember that I'd told Paula in Atlanta that she could hit Simon if, in her opinion, he had overstepped the mark with a cruel critique. She took me at my word and gave him quite a tough beating over the following weeks. I have to say, the entire team was thrilled with the fact that Paula had taken my advice to heart, and rumour had it that she had even trained with Freddie Roach, Manny Pacquiao's boxing coach, in order to achieve the perfect uppercut to the floating ribs. In an interview at the time, Simon remarked about his injuries. I'm not exaggerating. I was sitting to the right of it. The whole right side of my ribs were bruised, where she used to punch me in the ribs, elbow me. I wasn't the only one to calm Paula down whenever Simon upset her. Our American executive producer, Brian Gadinsky and Fremantle boss, Cecile Frocataz, had both been exceptionally good at talking to her and getting her to return to complete the audition process. In a predominantly male environment, or the boys' club, as Paula called us, Cecile was perfect to give Paula both moral and emotional support. Brian was an excellent and successful television producer in his own right. However, he was aware that Ken and I had made this show in the UK and pretty much left most of the creative elements of the production to us. Not forgetting, of course, that he'd been told not to change anything that we'd done in the UK. In an interview with E! News, he mentioned that fact. The edict came from the top levels of Fox that don't change a thing about the British version. Brian was an excellent politician and a superb calming influence to everyone. He had the patience of Job, and that was just with me. He'd put the entire production team together before Ken and I had arrived in the States. Some of the members, like senior producers David Goffin, Jennifer Bresnan, and Patrick Lynn, were excellent, while others, and I won't mention any names, Billy, may have been somewhat lacking in their knowledge of reality television. Good or bad, the team worked hard and Brian was an excellent man-manager who led them well. He was also good with Brian Dunkelman, who in fact just needed support and confidence, plus a little more script. Ryan Seacrest, on the other hand, was just full of confidence and had plenty to say, whether it was scripted or not. When things were again strained with Paula and Simon during the Hollywood auditions, he and Cecile took control of the situation as best they could. In an interview, Brian explained what he actually said to Paula in order to get her back into the auditions. First few people come in and audition and Simon says... You are horrendous. You're a loser. Paula starts to cry and walks off. It was the first of several moments to try to calm her down and explain to her, remember that these kids are going to be made famous and through your help. And 
so she came back down. I will never forget one night after the auditions, a number of the team, along with Kenny, Brian, Paula and myself, went for dinner. I believe Randy, Simon and Ryan had made their own plans and were out on the town. I guess Brian wanted to release some tensions and help us to get to know each other a little better. He suggested that we tell each other about an embarrassing moment that had happened to us during our lives. I looked around the table at the faces of the team. Some were smiling, others looked petrified, while Paula looked slightly amused and, like myself, was waiting to see what would happen. As nobody had said anything for a very long 30 seconds, Brian jumped in with his story. It regarded him being in bed with his wife and an earthquake. Well, I'm sure you'll all be disappointed to hear that for the sake of decency and that of Brian's reputation, I won't go into detail at this point. I have to say, it was a little shocking, but extremely funny. Not even waiting for the laughter to subside, Brian pointed at me. Your turn, Nigel. What have you got for us? I had been thinking what I would say during Brian's story, so I was prepared to tell them my story that was certainly one of the most embarrassing moments of my entire life. It actually included our other executive producer, Kenny Warwick. As you may remember from some of my other podcasts, we started our careers as singer-dancers in a group of 15 guys and 15 girls called The Young Generation. This particular performance that I'm going to tell you about included an incredible American legend, Eartha Kitt, performing with us in front of Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth of England. Eartha Kitt was an American singer, songwriter and actress. She had huge hits in the 50s and 60s with songs like I Want to Be Evil, I wanna be evil. Santa Baby, Santa Baby so hurry down the chimney and my favourite, just an old-fashioned girl who's looking for an old-fashioned millionaire. I want an old-fashioned house with an old-fashioned fence and an old-fashioned millionaire. She had a unique style of singing that resembled a cross between a dog growling and a cat purring. And that's probably why she was chosen to play Catwoman in the 60s TV series of Batman. Get in this car or I'll blow whatever little brains you have out. Orson Welles once described her as the most exciting woman in the world. Our indefatigable choreographer, Dougie Squires, was going to choreograph Eartha and our group in the age of Aquarius from the musical Hair. The first part of the musical arrangement had a very classical Indian feel to it, which was very much in at the time, heavily influenced by the Beatles and the whole counterculture of that period. Finger cymbals and gongs started the arrangement. It was very 60s hippie, extremely mystical and psychedelic. The vibe obviously inspired Dougie to start the routine by creating the image of the Hindu deity Durga, the warrior goddess with many arms. Eartha was standing in the front, with Kenny immediately behind her and me behind Kenny. Consequently, all you could see of Ken and myself 
were our arms, thereby giving the appearance Eartha had six arms. As the routine progressed with other members of the group dancing around us, Kenny wrapped his arms around Eartha's waist and lifted her into the air. Then at a certain point during the song, I was told to put my arms around them both and pick the pair of them up. I'm sure you realize that was a pretty tough thing to do, but Eartha didn't weigh very much and certainly Kenny was a lot lighter than he is now. I found if I took a deep plie, that's knee bend in second position with my legs apart, I could lock my arms around them tightly and I could use the strength in my legs to lift them a small amount of inches off the floor. Kenny then lifted his own legs too, which made it look higher than it really was. But I had to hold them there in midair for about 15 seconds. In this constricted position with both Kenny's and my arms around her, I had no idea how Eartha could continue singing, but somehow she did. Unfortunately, during rehearsals, I would often find my grip slipping and I would drop them both too soon. On the whole, rehearsals went well. Eartha loved the routine and we all loved Eartha. Come the evening of the performance, I was exceptionally nervous. I've always been scared of every performance I've ever done and, and I still am to this very day. Amazingly, even when I'm judging So You Think You Can Dance, it takes me about five minutes to be able to control my nerves, and that happens on every show. However, on this particular occasion, whether it was the fact we were performing in front of the Queen or the fear of dropping Ken and Eartha too soon, I was in a terrible state. The music began very quietly. Ching, ching, ching. We started waving our arms behind our star, and she started to sing, When the moon is in the seventh house, Kenny gently wrapped his arms around Eartha and lifted her into the air. I slowly encircled the pair of them with my arms and took an even deeper plie. There was no way I was going to drop them tonight. Just as she sang, and peace will guide the planets, I hold them both into the air, far higher than I'd ever done in rehearsals. And at this point, every little bit of air that was in my body was expelled extremely loudly out of my ass, creating the loudest and the longest fart in the world. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was probably one of the most embarrassing moments of my entire life. I have to say that it didn't affect Eartha's performance one little bit. She never missed a note. I didn't speak to anybody about this incident after the show. Of course, Kenny knew. But I will never know if Her Majesty heard anything or not. Even if she had have done, I can only hope she thought it was part of the musical arrangement. <laughs> well, you can imagine everyone around the table laughed heartily, including Paula who, having heard both Brian and myself make complete fools of ourselves, felt extremely comfortable enough to agree to tell her own story, one that included Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson, and Michael's chimpanzee, Bubbles. Woo, I can't wait to hear this story, I imagine you're all saying. Okay, so evidently the story begins with Paula in Janet Jackson's enormous bedroom working with her on some choreography. 
when Michael arrives and enters the bedroom holding bubbles in his arms. Apparently, Janet was not a lover of bubbles and ordered Michael to instantly remove the said chimp from her bedroom. Now, they say chimps are really smart and have a little more than 98% of human DNA. Whether Bubbles understood what Janet was saying, which I doubt, or he just felt the animosity directed at him, we will never know. But he shoved his hand down the back of the diaper he was wearing, grabbed a handful of crap, pulled it out, and threw it directly at Janet, who screamed and fell onto the bed. At the same time, Paula fell to the floor, crying with laughter, and unfortunately peed herself on Janet's luxurious white carpet. Oh, we were all too busy laughing at Paula's recreation of what must have been an incredible event to witness to go into any further details and repercussions of this hilarious tragedy. I can't for the life of me remember Kenny's story, and when I asked him about it just recently, he couldn't remember it either. However, Brian, Paula, and myself had shared our embarrassing, unwanted bodily function stories that had created an evening of camaraderie and laughter for ourselves and our production team. I hope you enjoyed this little trip behind the scenes, but now it's time to continue our journey through the first season of American Idol. Today, I'm going to be remembering the third semifinal that would provide three more competitors to join Tamira Gray, Ryan Starr, Jim Vararos, Justin Guarini, Kelly Clarkson, and A.J. Gill. With only the running order and introductions being scripted on the show, the presenters, Ryan and Brian, could make a lot of unscripted comments. The contestants themselves would say whatever they wanted, although on a live show, there was always a seven-second delay overseen by Trey Williams the Senior Vice President of Standards and Practices for Fox, just to ensure that nothing offensive or contentious was said. It's important for unscripted shows to be just that, unscripted. So many so-called reality shows nowadays rehearse situations and even skeleton script them. Now, this particular episode proved once and for all that anything could happen on American Idol. Thank goodness, however, that it was pre-taped and allowed us a slight edit. It started relatively normally, with Brian Dunkelman insulting Simon during the introductions, followed by the usual pseudo-homo banter between Ryan and Simon. Can I just say I love the blouse? See-through is very you. Does it come with matching panties? <laughs> what was different this week, as we reminded our audience, was that one of the rules of the competition on this first season was contestants had to be between the ages of 16 and 24. This changed over the years, but for season one, that was the rule. It came to our attention that one of our top 30, Delano Cagnolati from North Hills, California, had lied about his age. He told us he was 23. However, as Ryan questioned him, his story changed. Delano, how old are you? 23. What do you mean am I telling you the truth? That's the age that I am for this competition. And finally, the truth came out. 
29. So with Delano being ineligible to continue, we had to fly in an alternate with one day to go before taping. E.J. Day was the chosen contestant and flew in from Atlanta. It didn't help that his flight was delayed or the fact that the airline had lost his luggage. He would be joining the final nine. R.J. Helton from Atlanta, Christian Holt, Mark Scott, Nikki McKibben, Chris Badano, Melanie Sanders, Khalif Childs, and Christina Christian. They all gave E.J. a really warm welcome, little realizing that he might be taking their place in the top ten. First up to perform was R.J. Helton, who sang the Michael Jackson version of I'll Be There. I think Michael was 11 years old when he sang it so strongly, but R.J. was a 20-year-old who sang it extremely nervously and added more runs than Babe Ruth ever hit. However, Randy said that he liked the sound and tone of R.J.'s voice. Paula thought R.J. had given a solid rendition of the song and then, as floor manager Debbie Williams puts it, the shiitake hit the fan. I could not disagree with you more, Paula. I don't um, that was solid. I thought it was completely distinct. I'm sorry, average. In the last two episodes, two losers have been voted through for one reason and one reason only. It is the simple. The tension between the judges finally Simon, reached breaking point. And I'm fed up with it. Simon, I've been sitting here week after week. You keep insulting these people. You can't call people losers. Paula tried to say America is about celebrating talent, but Simon interrupted with... Oh, exactly. don't give me that American exactly. rubbish, Paula. This is America. We don't do this to people. We don't insult well, people I'm like that. not America. Go and take a happy <laughs> pill and we'll deal with this later. Yeah, hey, come on. You want to do something about it? Yeah, well, it was at this point that Randy stood up and walked across to tower over Simon's chair. RJ couldn't believe this was happening in front of him. I just kept my mouth shut and, and let him go at it, having Simon uh, call me a loser. <laughs> and then having Randy stick up for me and Paula say, you know, you can't do that. You just can't talk to people like that. It was all extremely intimidating. And this is where we had to stop the recording to let the whole thing calm down. It seemed to be a storm in a teacup, with Randy losing it over the word loser. In truth, what actually happened was somewhat different from what the television audience saw. Come on, we'll discuss it later. Dude, you're in America now, dude. You can't do this. I can do what you I want. Can't. No, you can't. You, you really, really can't. can't. You really can't. Not when it's with these kids. Simon had really said not two losers, but two monkeys. Randy had taken this as a racial slur, and I have to say it was totally innocent on Simon's part. Firstly, the two singers he was referring to were both white, Jim Vararos and A.J. Gill. Secondly, in our country, monkeys is a term used to describe irritating or naughty kids. We often say, oh, you cheeky monkey. Randy calmed down when Ken and I explained everything to him. Simon was very upset and made it quite clear that there was no way on earth he meant to offend anyone other than Jim Ferraris and A.J. Gill. I then had to explain to both Randy and Simon that the energy and passion of the last few moments of this recording was very special and I wanted to keep it. We certainly agreed that we had no intention of innocently offending any of our viewers, so we would substitute the word two monkeys or two losers, to allow Randy to react 
And also, Randy could then add, you cannot treat American kids this way. Therefore, we reshot Simon saying losers, but kept Randy reacting to Simon saying the word monkeys. Oh, the magic of television editing. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Very good. RJ escaped to the safety of the Red Room. Ryan and Brian were constantly pointing out to the contestants that Simon bashed that it didn't matter what he said. Their existence in the competition was now in the hands of the viewers. Brian Dunkelman was sharp to announce a possible new program coming to the Fox schedule. Celebrity boxing Simon Cowell and Randy Jackson this fall on Fox. What Fox was that? Television. I know who my money would have been on. Next to audition after all of this commotion was Kristen Holt. On rushing to the judges' table to celebrate being put through to Hollywood back at her Dallas audition, she had fallen onto her backside. Now, ironically, she was going to perform the singer-songwriter Alicia Keys' 2001 debut hit single, I Keep On Falling. Don't you just love Irene? When she was in Pasadena, Simon told Kristen she was a star, so we were expecting great things. Paula felt that Kristen was a little disengaged and not as good as she'd hoped. Randy. Thank you, Simon. Randy, obviously affected by Simon's previous argument, told her that they were looking for the best in America, and this performance was not nearly good enough. But I would have thought that the most stinging comment came from Cowell. Kristen, if I was judging a beauty competition, you'd win. But with judging a singing competition, it wasn't good enough. It was the wrong choice of song for you. You're out of your league in this. Sorry. On returning to the shelter of the Red Room for the love and support of Ryan and Brian, Kristen hit back. I think he yeah. missed the bucket at the door because that's where we drop our attitude. <laughs> <laughs> you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife as Mark Scott took the small stage to sing the Temptations Motown hit, My Girl. At his first audition in Chicago, Paula and Simon fell out as Mark basically did a Michael Jackson impression. Paula loved him. Simon didn't. The first to critique him today was Paula. He was obviously hoping for words of support and praise for his performance. Neither came. Paula said, I love your voice. I'm a big fan of yours, but I didn't care for the song choice and performance. Randy didn't think it was good enough, and neither did Simon. As Mark turned to leave the stage, Simon shouted out to the Red Room. And a little message to, to the two hosts, Brian and Ryan, who think everyone is great. What do you know about judging a talent competition? Nothing. <laughs> it's true. He was obviously annoyed by the total support the singers were getting from Ryan and Brian. And at this point, Brian countered with his own message. I don't know anything about judging talent. I just don't like watching really good kids cry. That's all. The heat was turned up even higher in the studio. Everyone was nervously waiting for something to explode. And I was loving it. This is what good, unscripted television is all about. Passion, volatility, astonishment, shock, raw emotion. But above all, absolute honesty. And if you can fake that with a little help from your editor, you've got it made. What we needed now was a great performance. Nikki McKibben was up next, singing Bonnie Tyler's 1983 hit, Total Eclipse of the Heart, written by J. 
Jim Steinmeier. Now, in her Dallas audition, Nikki had sung Simon's least favorite song, I Will Survive. However, he thought that it was the best he'd ever heard it sung. So fingers were crossed that she'd do well right now. Because of the empty, cavernous studio and the single piano accompaniment, I felt Nikki had sung the song far too loudly at the beginning and then too quietly at the end. You know, when you're watching TV and the program cuts to the break and one commercial is so loud you turn down the volume on the television and then everything after that is too quiet? Well, that's how it felt to me. Randy remarked that it was an interesting choice of song. Paula loved the fact that Nikki marched to the beat of her own drum. I was just thinking, well, it's a very loud drum then. When Paula said she felt Nikki had screamed a little bit. Thank goodness, I thought. It wasn't just me. And at this point, Simon agreed. Amazingly, I agree with Paula, which is... Um, <laughs> I think Amazing. You did, I think you did shout the song a bit, but um, I think that you are one of the strongest contestants in this competition because you have originality. And I hope you do really well in this competition because I think you deserve to. Nikki was thrilled and returned to the Red Room to much applause for receiving a positive response from Simon. Next up was Chris Badano. He'd been told by Randy to work on his confidence at his initial audition in New York City. Now, I can only imagine what the Christians must have looked like when they were walking out into the Colosseum to face the lions. Well, that was exactly how I felt Chris looked now. He stepped up onto that small stage extremely nervously and began mouthing the all-for-one 1994 hit I swear. And I'm sure when Chris heard his performance back, that's probably exactly what he wanted to do, swear. And I must say, at one point, he was so frightened and horror-stricken that his vibrato was so bad, it sounded like he was gargling. Paula naturally thought he was great. Randy thought he was lacking in energy and went on to say, I didn't like it, man. I thought it was really, really bad, actually. Ooh. Simon agreed with Randy. Uh, Chris just wasn't good enough. And it was obvious to us all that Chris would be making little or no impact on the voters at home. Next to stride onto the stage was six-foot-tall Melanie Sanders. Now, five-foot-tall Paula Abdul had made it quite clear at Melanie's audition in Pasadena what her fantasy was regarding Melanie's long legs. Well, my fantasy would be to chop your legs off from the knee down and surgically have them implanted. Wow, like, Paula. This time I'm not asking you. better be careful when you're sleeping. Melanie sang the diva song from the musical Dreamgirls, And I Am Telling You. Randy thought it was a tough song to sing. Paula loved it. And Simon felt it was a little cabaret, which confused Melanie into thinking he meant a strip club. For sure, Simon had visited a number of strip clubs over the years, but it generally wasn't to hear anybody sing. No, he explained he meant Las Vegas. Melanie was relieved and returned to the safety of the Red Room. EJ Day, our next singer, sang Get Here at his first audition and again Get Here at Pasadena. And now, after the disqualification of Delano, our producers called EJ in Atlanta the day before and said, get here. Another piece of irony. 
So here he was singing the 1997 Edwin McCain song, I'll Be. He was amazing, and his performance covered at least three octaves. Simon, for the only time I can remember, wanted to be the first to critique. No one has sung better than that today. Paula thought he'd blown everyone away, and Randy was shocked at EJ's vocal range. EJ replied, That's my range. God bless me with a, a good range, and I'm going to use it as much as I can. So far on this show, we'd had fighting talk, tears, anger, laughter, and now a great performance. A perfect mixture of emotions, rather like finding a winning lottery ticket that you thought you'd lost. It was obvious to me that we'd finally peaked. As we were on the way down, when Tanisha Ross shouted Aretha Franklin's 1974 hit Until You Come Back to Me. It was originally written by Stevie Wonder and the original had a great R&B, slightly jazzy feel. Unfortunately, as well as shouting it, Tanisha also put so many unmelodic runs in her performance that the basic tune was being lost. She may have sung all the right notes, but she'd put them in the wrong order. Randy remarked that she never found the right note. I thought maybe she'd never found the right song. Paula told her today was not good. Simon added that she didn't shine like a star and so what. He went on to say there are just better people in the competition. Her tears were evident as she walked back to the red room. You could have cut the air with a knife. I think everyone thought EJ's performance had lifted the show to great heights. Now here we were spiraling down again. But I think that's the greatness of a roller coaster ride. Hang on, folks, because this is a roller coaster ride in the dark, and you just don't see what's coming next. Well, Khalif Childs was coming next for us with another Stevie Wonder song, My Sharia Moore. Understandably, Khalif was scared out of his wits. He had the hardest time remembering his lyrics in Pasadena, and today was no different. Randy thought he looked petrified. Paula, as supportive as ever for these young people, said, I think that you took the song and you made it yours. Yes, he'd certainly made the song his own by screwing up his lyrics and making new ones up. I think Stevie Wonder could have either sued him for changing the words, or possibly shared his royalties with this new lyricist. Paula also thought he'd done a good job. Simon immediately burst that balloon, telling Khalif that it wasn't his best performance and that he believed Khalif knew he hadn't done a good job. He then went on to remind him of what exactly happened in Pasadena. What I do like about you is I remember seeing you on the second show when you weren't mixing in with the other three because you wanted to do your own thing. And when I hear all this rubbish about all the contestants saying, oh, this is my new family, give me a break. You are someone who cares about you. Good luck. Hope you win the competition. <laughs> Simon had once again changed the atmosphere in the studio and put a smile on everyone's face. Someone who always put a smile on Simon's face was the final singer of the night. 21-year-old Christina Christian. She, too, was guilty of changing Stevie Wonder's lyrics to Isn't He Lovely when she dedicated it to Simon at her initial audition in Miami. Isn't he lovely? 
Is it he? Is it he? For her audition now, she was singing a 1941 song from the musical film Sun Valley Serenade, made famous in 1960 by Etta James, called At Last. Paula was truly impressed. You have such star presence. You really do. The camera loves you. You've got a voice that matches. That was a difficult song to sing. Congratulations Thank and good you. luck to you. Thank you so much. Randy sounded a little less impressed, but thought it was good. Simon, as expected, thought Christina was a star and loved her performance. He remarked that there had been some bland performances on the show that day but ended with, thank God for you, and admitted to having a crush on her. So all ten had sung and everyone was happy to escape the intensity and emotion of the day, while I was looking forward to getting into the editing room and having some fun. The following night's results show would keep alive the American dream for three successful contestants and break the hearts of seven unlucky ones. The first part of the program started off by reviewing the previous night's performances and arguments. It was obvious that the relationship between Randy and Simon was still a little raw. In his defense, Simon was insistent that all he wanted was for the best singer to become the American Idol and that America had the best talent in the world. So therefore, we should find the best American Idol. You can imagine how he brightened up when the first name read out to take their place in the top ten was Christina Christian. Simon thought that the American voters had got this absolutely right. Paula thought Christina was in the stratosphere, and it must have hurt Randy Jackson to say it. But say it, he did. I hate to agree with Simon, but it's true. <laughs> During the Ford Focus moment, Kristen Holt said she wanted to run Simon over with her Ford Focus car. RJ said he wanted to join Randy and deck Simon. All pretty tough comments against Simon. Until Khalif said, I don't care what anyone says. I like Simon. So whatever happened in the future for Simon, he would always have the love and support of his wonderful mum, Julie, and Khalif Childs, a contestant from American Idol. The next contestant to get through to the top 10 was Nikki McKibben. Simon had complimented her on her style, originality, and individuality. The public had obviously agreed, and here she was moving into the top 10. Two winners announced. Who would be the third? Ryan asked the judges who they thought it was going to be. Simon dodged the question and just said, no comment, let's see what happens. Both Randy and Paula thought it was going to be EJ on the strength of his amazing vocal the night before. The final envelope was slowly opened. And sure enough, the name that was read out was EJ Day. So for the guy that had originally never made the top 30, here he was joining the top 10. Thank you for the support and the love, and I appreciate it, and all the votes. Thank you so much. I won't let you down. As the nine winners that would be moving on celebrated their success, Simon had to bring them back down to earth by saying, I'm not going to pretend that everyone of this group 
is going to be a star, because they are not. Well, no matter what Simon said for now, they were stars. Out of 10,000 hopefuls, here they were in the top nine thanks to America's vote. They could enjoy that for at least the next couple of weeks. This third semi-final and the results show would be mainly remembered for the raw exchange of words between Randy and Simon. And although I edited it to remove any racially provocative words, there was still a feeling from Randy and Paula that Simon was being too hard on these young hopefuls. Well, who better to speak to about the UFU fisticuffs battle of the century, Jackson versus Cowell, than the man himself, Randy Jackson. Yo, let's go. Randy Jackson, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, 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 let's go. Okay, now let me remind you where we are. Simon is very unhappy after semifinal one, America put through Jim Vararos. In semifinal two, America put through AJ Gill. And now RJ Helton is standing in front of him and Simon thinks that he is very average. Yeah, it's all coming back to me now. So for me, that said a lot of things. That the minute the voting was taken away from the judges and given to America, America says, we don't really care what you say. We're going to put through who we want to put through. Well, that was the interesting thing also about the show. No matter what we would say week in, week out, you could really tell if America believed us or not. <laughs> you know, those judges align. Uh, we believe what they say. They're not telling the truth. We want this. We want that. That was the greatest thing, I think. Because, you know, you got you to gotta think, being an A&R guy and a musician and a producer, writer, and all that stuff myself, putting it on America is a very different thing from the A&R process. When we would sign acts at the record label, we were telling the public here, you like this. Public would go, no, we don't like that, or yes, we do like that. So now we're saying public, hear the subject, you tell us what you like. It was a great, great thing, which is still one of the greatest things in American history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly. And, and giving the public that power to decide on yeah. who... They're obviously, whoever comes through as the idol is going to be truly supported by the public. That's the great concept of the whole thing. Yeah, because they're going to buy it, so why not give them the choice? Well, obviously, they were given the choice, and Simon was really annoyed because, well, his point was that we've got the best talent here in America, and we need the best person to be the American idol. Particularly in the first series, we really wanted the best person. And the fact that the public was choosing people in what Cal thought was out of sympathy really annoyed him. Uh, and that's what he was furious about. Which then, come the infamous semifinal three, the third show in this little run, was the one I will always remember because there was so much that went on. It was like a, a roller coaster ride. And well, that was when me and Cal had our dust You up, had right? a thing. That's right. And Cal said, I cannot stand the fact that two monkeys have been put through. At which point, I guess, and I've spoken to Deborah Bird about this, that you thought that it was a racial slur by using the term monkeys. I was really upset about that. I was pissed about that because, to me, that was like cutting below the belt. But I understand after talking to him afterward, and listen, he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. 
you know, he's one of my boys. I love him, but I understand from him that's not from the British side of it. That's not what he really meant. So you know, we later after the show talked it out, but in that moment, dude, I was living. Oh, I remember. I remember having to stop the recording and come and calm you down. Um, yeah. I think we explained to you, uh, and you accepted the fact that the Brits use the term monkeys as being cheeky, cheeky kids. Oh, you cheeky monkey, we would often say to people, you know? Uh, so there was certainly no slur intended. And because... It's still not a great term, I will add. <laughs> it's still not great. <laughs> but for, for Americans, but... for Americans, maybe not. But don't forget, you use different words than we do. I mean, you're when I came over here and you were talking about fannies, sit on your fanny and I've got a fanny pack, you do realize right. that the word fanny in England means vagina. So, you know, it's, it's, we have different, we have the same language, but different words that mean different things. So monkey really isn't yeah. bad in any way, shape or form in the UK. But no, after you guys explained it to me and he and I talked it out, you know, but with, I wanted to keep, I wanted, because you towered over him at one point. I mean, you were very intimidating. I, you know, you were saying, "Come on, take it outside." You know, if I had to put money on either of you, I know who I would have put my money on at that point. Me, yes, the champion. <laughs> I am the champion Ch of the world. I'm telling you. <laughs> and uh, well, you know, it just it rubbed me the wrong way because you know what we've been through in this country, what we're going through now, the social injustice, and in the whole world, what's been happening, and now being brought back to light. It just hit me wrong, you know what I mean? Being a proud black man from the South, yo, what? Yeah, but the two people he was talking about was A.J. Gill and Jim Vararos, both of which I were know. white guys. I mean, the, I know, the, I know. The fact know. is, the, he didn't want to upset you in any way, shape, or form or anybody else using a term that he was unaware uh, could be taken in that light. Yeah, no, you guys really explained it to me. And he, you know, took me aside and said, bro, listen, you know. Randy, I can't believe that. The, Randy, I cannot believe that. There is no way Simon Cowell would have said, bro. He didn't say bro. Oh, oh. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Bro, listen, no, no, that's not I got to apologize because, like, I, I didn't mean anything. Of course. Because, you know, I didn't really know that that word meant something different in England. Yeah. I really did not know that. Yeah. Uh, and then, because I wanted to keep the the action, because I loved I loved the friction and the action and the honesty of it, we got him to change the word to losers, which would allow you to still react to the word. Don't call anybody losers, uh, and it came across as as sensational. I mean, it was for me. It sort of drew the audience in. Wow, there is passion between these judges. They care. They really care, and, and that's really important. Yeah, right. And for me, Randy, you've always cared, and I thank you for that, and I thank you for once again coming on My Idle Memories, and I'm going to be talking to you one more time this season. Yes, brother. So thanks, Randy. Take care. Peace, man. Okay. Bye now. Bye. Well, next week, we'll take a look at the Wild Card Show, where the vote goes back to the judges. Who will they put through into the top 10? But that's another story. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to My Idle Memories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, don't forget to rate us and be nice. Don't give us a Simon Cowell review. Stay safe. Cue music. Music.